Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another Fisher Investments Market Insights podcast, where we discuss our firm's latest thinking on global capital markets and current events. My name is Naj Srinivas, Group Vice President of Client Communications here at the firm, and today I'm joined by research analyst here at the firm, Christo Barker. Hi, Naj. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here today. Christo, you cover Europe for the firm. What are some of the stories that you've been following so far this year? It's obviously been a pretty eventful year in terms of politics in Europe, but then also tied to things like trade between, say, the United States and Europe. So what are some of the major stories you've been following recently, maybe just overall this year? Yeah, I would say absolutely. The last year and even recently have been very interesting in terms of European politics. Uh, But I'd say very, in terms of timely, would be trade. Uh, in fact, earlier today, we, we heard about what was happening between the European Union and, and the, the U.S. in terms of forming a trade deal. That's very welcome. But in terms of what we actually have as a substance, it's very little. Mm-hmm. So I'd say some of the more substantive things that we've seen throughout the last sort of year or so will really come back to what we've seen in Italy in terms of the formation of their government, uh, the turnover of the government that we've seen in Spain. Uh, also, the, the brief spat that you saw between uh, Merkel and their, her CDU party with her sister party. In Germany. In Germany, yeah, the, the, the CSU. Mm-hmm. The leader there, his name is uh, Seehorfer. Uh, and, and finally, I think one of the more unsung factors that really has a lot of positive surprise power looking forward would be uh, the, the things that we've seen happen in France uh, mm-hmm. with, with Macron's government and, and, and Marche. So I think those are some of the factors that, that would really be uh, a welcome conversation at this point. And of course, you can't forget all of the can kicking that's been going on with Brexit. Oh, yeah. How could you forget Brexit? So let's start with with Italy. We talked about, or you mentioned sort of the political turnover that you saw going back to last year. What happened there and what's been going on since? So uh, Italy... Italy's long been the, the, the one area in the European Union that just can't keep a government together. I think they've had 66 or 67 different governments since Mussolini. Uh, that's not a very good track record. Um, so what you had in Italy is you had the calling of elections. Uh, that was largely in line with what folks were thinking was going to happen. Um, and during that election, you actually saw two populist parties within Italy actually get a pretty high portion of the vote. Um, so you have the, the very right-leaning uh, league, led by Matteo Slavini, and then you have the hodgepodge of a bunch of different factors kind of coming together on the other side, which is, I don't want to call it left, but they do have left leanings, and they're called the five-star. Through an incredibly messy process in, in terms of forming a coalition that took a very long time, these two parties did eventually come together and form a government. So that messy process actually weighed on investor sentiment for quite some time. Now, you you may remember uh, that there's a very difficult process in terms of getting that government together, and the final sign-off comes from the president of Italy, which is typically a very ceremonial role, but that president actually has to sign off on each one of the members of cabinet. Well, and one of the members that they proposed, the finance minister, the president of Italy actually said no. And they struck that that uh, proposal down, and that's actually when when the markets actually rolled over very very heavily during that time. The big fear for markets being what though? Quiddly. Have you ever heard that term, the the quiddly term? It's a portmanteau, just like Brexit, right? Just like Brexit, <laughs> quitting Italy. It's the it's the Italian version of Brexit. Um, 
However, uh, the reality of acquittaling is incredibly, incredibly low. Uh, but again, when you have something that's front of mind and, and very in front of investors' fears like that, it, it can have outsized reactions. And, and you saw a very negative reaction in terms of Italian bond prices, and you also saw a negative reaction in terms of equities and the euro as well. So anything that has sort of sensitivities to, to folks' um, sentiment was really dragged down by what was happening in terms of this messy process of form, forming a coalition. So these two fringe parties were able to actually form a coalition. What have they accomplished since then, or, or, or maybe not? Yeah. Um, what have they accomplished so far? Uh, the, the short answer is not a whole heck of a lot. Uh, the, the, there's not a ton of things that they've actually accomplished so far. Um, the only thing that I can really point to is that they declined to ratify a free trade deal between the, the, the European Union and Canada. Aside from that, they haven't really accomplished much of anything. Now, the, the, true, the true tale of when we'll actually see the colors of what each one of these parties really wants to do will likely come in October. And October is when Italy typically starts to, to form their budget for the next year. And, and that's where you're really going to start to see where the, the League and the Five Star are really different in terms of their policies and ideologies. And that's the big problem between this coalition is that they're, they're very unlikely to get anything done because they're ideologically opposed on so many different things that coming together and actually getting some sort of semblance of agreement is just a very low likelihood. Even for the little things, that makes the really big things like Italy leaving the Eurozone that much more unlikely. It, absolutely. Uh, so if you think about the, the coalition and the percent that the, each one of these parties, when you put them together, what they have in terms of parliament, uh, you, you're looking at 53%. So if Italy were to actually leave the euro, they need a two-thirds majority to actually do so. So 53%, you'd have to have every single one of those members vote and then a bunch of other parties that definitely don't want to exit the euro also vote in favor. So it's, again, one of those incredibly low likelihoods that just doesn't seem like it's plausible. So the other country you just mentioned, or one of the other countries you just mentioned, was Spain. What's happening in Spain? I know there's a new socialist government that's in power there. What have they done, and how has that affected markets? So I would, I'll answer this very briefly. Uh, it's very similar to what's happened in Italy in terms of what they've actually accomplished, which is nothing <laughs> so far. Um, but rewinding in terms of what actually happened, um, so what happened in Spain was very different than actually what happened in Italy. So in Italy, they actually had elections. They went to the polls and they figured out who was actually going to be within, within government. In Spain, it was very different. There wasn't any actual elections. What happened was previously to, to what happened with, this, with what I'm about to unfold was that there was a minority government that was led by the, um, the right-leaning Rajoy. So his party was in charge for, call it about four or five years, six years, something like that. And this minority government was very fragile. And so this fragile government was basically formed with a coalition of a bunch of other parties that were very loosely held together. So it sounds an awful lot like gridlock, and they didn't really get a whole heck of a lot done. So what happened was Rajoy's party uh, was convicted of a, a lot of fraudulent behavior. Um, not Rajoy himself, but his party was. 
And so because his party was convicted of this fraudulent behavior and running a slush fund and things like that, there was a big kind of uproar against Rajoy's party. And this uproar really forced out uh, Prime Minister Rajoy. And what happened is the opposition party, the socialists, they, they came in and they decided to form their own minority government, which is a coalition government as well. And so there wasn't any election, but what happened is you had a turnover of prime minister. And so you go from a center-right-leaning government to a center-left-leaning government with the socialist and Sanchez. So a lot of hullabaloo with not a whole heck of a lot getting done. Okay. So moving on to Germany, last August you had an election in Germany. Angela Merkel managed to stay in power with her CDU-CSU coalition. What are some of the latest developments that you're following there? Sure. Um, the, the coalition between the, the CDU and the longstanding CSU, which is the, essentially the sister party, so the Christian Democrats are uh, by far and away the, the, the biggest party within all of Germany. That's Merkel's core. They have had a very long-standing uh, relationship with their sister party called the CSU, which is essentially the Christian Democrats, but out of the Bavarian region. So they've had this long-standing partnership that's gone back for 50, 60 years. Uh, what happened earlier this year is there was a very public spat between Merkel and the head of the CSU out of Bavaria. Uh, his name is Seehorfer. So the, this public spat was very much centered on what was happening with uh, immigration. And that continues to be a very contentious issue really across the board, not just in Germany. It's one of those things that's, uh, that, that's really driving all sides of the equation in just about any country across Europe. So what happened was uh, the, the CSU uh, president, Seehorfer, he wanted to take a firmer stance on immigration than what Merkel's party, the CDE, wanted to do. So he took a very public stance in saying that we need to do something in terms of immigration, so we're going to set up borders along the Austrian border between Germany, and we're going to be very firm about letting people in and out. Merkel said, no, you can't do that because that's against all sorts of EU policy. One of the pillars of EU policy is free, yep, free movement. Free movement of people and capital. Um, and so there was this very public spat that developed. So within this public spat, uh, you have to kind of peel back the layers and figure out what, what was, was uh, Seyhorfer actually doing? What was his goal? What was his purpose with this? And so almost always anything that a politician do, is doing goes back to politics and what's going to get them or their party reelected. So if you, you think about it in that lens, you, you think about that Bavaria is actually about to have another election. They're about to have another election in, in the, the, the local market within Bavaria um, in October. And so what's been happening there is the alternative for Germany, the, the populist party that's very kind of anti-immigrant, they've been gaining a lot of popularity. And they've been taking and peeling off share from the CSU. So Seehorfer's stance was, I'm going to take a very public stance in order to shore up my majority within Bavaria. Ahead of these elections. Ahead of these elections. And then I'll soften my tone after the fact. And really, that, that's kind of what's unfolded thus far. Politicians interested in one thing above all else, staying in power. Seemingly so. It's not just a U.S. thing, is it? Nope. So you mentioned Emmanuel Macron, uh, the leader of France. What's happening in France? What has he accomplished recently? And how does that differ from what we've seen in some of the other countries we've talked about today? 
Sure, and I actually think France is is a is a pretty good example that of of a country that's doing something very different than what what's being reported in the news. Um, and in in terms of what, what where we've been with France, uh, I think a little backstory helps a little bit here. Um, so with the backstory, you you go back to the election of April of twenty seventeen. Uh, Emmanuel, Emmanuel Macron's party basically swept. Uh, they swept all houses of parliament. They got about a 61% majority. Despite fears of Marine Le Pen winning. That's right. Yeah, Marine Le Pen was supposed to win that election by a landslide. And by the way, uh, Le Pen's party, I think they have three seats in, in parliament, uh, in a 600-person in house parliament. They have three seats. So uh, Macron's party just swept to power. And... and one of the, the pillars of, of what they wanted to do once they were in power was to go in and they wanted to reform the employment process, which a lot of folks ha have been complaining about for a very, very long time. It's incredibly difficult to hire and fire people out of France. And that was preventing folks from uh, moving to France, uh, creating jobs in France. And so essentially that was his first pillar. The, the, the party's first pillar was to relax uh, a lot of these very stringent laws. So a lot of uh, unemployment reform and a lot of reform in terms of negotiating power, shifting the negotiating power from unions to individuals. And so that was essentially the, the, the first pillar of the reform. The second pillar of reform that, that occurred just a, a few months after that was tax reform. So this tax reform, again, is going very much under the radar because I'm sure anyone listening to this in the U.S. has heard, you know, ad nauseum what's happening with U.S. tax reform. Not a lot of folks have, t have heard about or even talked about what happened with tax reform in France. So tax reform in France went from a 33% corporate tax rate all the way down to a 25% corporate tax rate. Gradually over the course of a couple years, but still, that announcement and that understanding that tax reform is underway is one of those powerful drivers that is in my mind, underappreciated. And that's a pretty big change for a country like France, which overall has a pretty high taxation rate, whether you look at corporations or individuals. So seeing that sort of thing actually get across the finish line is a big deal that's pretty underappreciated so far. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there, there hasn't been a cut in the, in the French corporate tax rate in several decades. Wow. So it, and it's not just the corporate tax rate either. Uh, Macron actually and his party actually pushed through a lot of other reforms for individuals. So I don't know if you remember this, but there was a wealth tax in, in France for about six or seven years. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it, what it essentially did is it, it, it taxed the wealthy and anyone making over a million dollars. And if you had a million dollars in assets, it would tax those assets essentially at 60 to 80 percent. Wow. Which is, which is amazing in terms of the level and the extent of those taxes. So what do you think that did? You saw a flight of wealthy people leaving France. Exactly. So there, there's an, there, there was an estimate about, I think, 60,000, 66,000 folks leaving France to escape the wealth tax. Well, uh, that, that wealth tax has been axed. That, that wealth tax no longer exists. And they've also reformed the um, capital gains tax to a flat capital gains tax of, of 30% from 66% or a, a very complicated set of rules that was about 66% all the way down to about 30. So there's been a lot of uh, moving parts in terms of tax reform that are benefiting both individuals and investors, but also corporations too. A lot of this stuff is just sliding under the radar, but is a net positive, essentially because nobody's talking about it. 
So we've actually had some progress on things in France, much to the surprise to maybe most of our listeners or a lot of people out there in the world. Brexit has been in the news quite a bit, but what's really gone on since 2016? It's been two years since the referendum was passed to leave the European Union. We supposedly have another two years to go before they're actually supposed to leave the European Union completely. What's been accomplished so far and where, where do we stand with all that? You know, uh, I will say it's actually fairly remarkable about the lack of progress that we've had over the last two years. I cannot point to a single concrete thing that has actually happened for Brexit. Well, Boris Johnson resigned. That's pretty concrete, right? (laughs) That is concrete. Politicians will be politicians. Um, But in, in terms of getting any real clarity on what Brexit actually means or life after Brexit, what it's going to look like, we have absolutely nothing. We have nothing to go on except a lot of new terms and a lot of jargon thrown around without any real clarity what anything looks like. So if the next two years are anything like the last two years, we're basically going to be right where we are two years from now. So again, it's been a very frustrating process for anyone who wanted to see any progress, but this has been far more grinding than what most people imagined. What does that mean, though, for economic growth in Great Britain? What does it mean for stock markets across Europe? I mean, how have they done so far? And if this is the kind of status quo of things and this can just keeps getting kicked on down the road, what does that portend for, for markets? You know, I would say that uh, Brexit is a a cloud of uncertainty, um, but the longer that it's there, the more and more folks are going to get used to it. And so far, it hasn't had a material negative impact across markets in the European Union or markets across the UK. Now, granted, it it may have held the markets back a little bit, just in aggregate, because it it does create a little bit of uncertainty. And because you have a little bit of uncertainty, you don't know what things are going to look like a few years from now, you may hold off on a handful of projects here and there. But for the most part, it hasn't had a material negative impact on the market yet. So uh, for the most part, I can't say that there's anything too terrible because of Brexit at this point, other than potentially holding back demand that would have otherwise been there. Well, that's all we have time for today. Christo, thanks so much for your time today. And for all of you listening, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for having me, Nash. For more, please visit marketminder.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. Past performance is no guarantee of future returns. The content of this podcast represents the opinions and viewpoints of Fisher Investments and should not be regarded as personal investment advice. No assurances are made we will continue to hold these views, which may change at any time based on new information, analysis, or reconsideration. Copyright Fisher Investments 2018.